I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged, and we got a a little bit of a special thing going on here. You guys have heard it before. I'm going to yeah. surprise you with something. Okay. It's unexpected. Okay. Audience, we are in our segment that is called Converse with Scholars. Uh, new, it's kind of a transition. I mean, we have been doing Converse with Scholars since uh, 2000. How, how long has it been, Carrie? How long have we been doing Converse with Scholars? 2006. And, and I think our guest here, don't tell them who it is. Okay. I think our guest here was in um, one of our first Converse with Scholars. And I think we've had him two or three times. I'm not sure yet. We had him on moral relativism and on abortion. Okay, you're, you're giving too much away, but luckily they can't hear you. Um, and we used to do it live online. Now we fly the scholar here to the Credo House because we just like the Credo House and we want all our scholars to see the Credo House and we're really excited about it. Yeah. But Tim's here with me. Sam is not here. Uh, we don't invite Sam to these things. Um, yeah, he just he hasn't elevated himself and yeah, proven we, himself long enough. We mainly just keep the varsity team together for yeah, the sure Converse with Scholars, <laughs> and then we let Sam Storms come in later. Uh, we have so. got a special guest, Greg Kokel. Greg, how you doing? Hey, I am so thrilled to be here at Cradle House. Uh, it is a cool place. Well, we are really? in the middle of the Credo House, sitting in the middle. We usually do it back in the studio, uh-huh. but we put it out here in the middle of the studio. Yeah. Let me introduce you real quick. Greg, as you, many of you guys know him, many of you guys may not have uh, been introduced to Greg yet, but he is the president and founder of Stand a Reason broadcast. Stand a Reason, meaning stand up and use your mind. Reason. Right. Make a defense of the faith. Give him a piece of your mind. That's right. <laughs> Um, we have had him on before. I think we were talking about his book, Moral Relativism, that I have in front of me. Mm-hmm. Moral Relativism, co-authored with uh, Francis Beckwith, who we also have had on Converse with Scholars before. Uh, Feet f- Planted Firmly in Midair. That's a great subtitle. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you come up with that? Actually, I stole it from Francis from uh, uh, Francis Schaefer, and he probably stole it from someone else. So I think it's been around for a while. But well, it's a great description of relativism. I, I came mm-hmm. up with it one time on my own without ever looking at what you guys <laughs> have said. Uh, you also have written a book called Tactics I want to refer to here in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. Right. Lots of different things. We're going to have you tonight on our special uh, uh, Night with Scholars. Is that what we call it? Night with Scholars. Uh, yeah, I think we call it an evening with scholars. An evening with scholars. That's yeah. right, because the tickets say an evening with scholars. That's right. Uh, we, have we, we thought a night with scholars just felt a little weird, <laughs> so an evening just <laughs> has a little bit more of a civilized nature. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so doesn't appeal to the prurient interest. <laughs> Lunch with scholars. We've just completed coffee with scholars. We're on with theology. Uh, converse with scholars. And tonight, an evening with scholars. And Greg Kokel is our guest, and he's going to be talking about, Is Jesus the Only Way Tonight? We're really excited about it. Greg, very excited that you're here. Thanks. Thank um, you. And you like the Credo House. Uh, it's just fantastic. I came in, was it last evening for the first time? Yes. You gave me a little tour, and uh, it just appeals to everything I like. Hmm. Uh, in addition to the coffee, the theological atmosphere, the thoughtful approach to Christianity, um, the, the willingness to kind of put it all right out there without being uncomfortable or ashamed of our our religious convictions and being willing to engage people who want to talk about it. If they don't want to talk about it, they just want to drink coffee, 
fine too. Yeah. Well, let me ask you something because this relates to your your tactics book, mm-hmm. and you, you have a lot of people using this tactics book and and going through small groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've heard tons of people that have that are are engaged with tactics, and one of one of you talk about tactics. Um, what what do you mean about are you are you talking about being tactful? Well, it certainly entails that. What I mean by the word tactic specifically is maneuvers. If if you want to think of it in the military way, uh, strategy is the big picture. Mm-hmm. Tactics is the, uh, well, in military terms, kind of the hand-to-hand combat kind of things. But I'm really referring to it in the sense of when we get face-to-face with people, how do we engage them in a productive way? Uh, I usually talk when I give presentations on this, I talk about conferences that people go to 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 learn about apologetics and they get lots of information that's really good but there's a missing piece and it's the bridge from the content to the conversation or as I put it from the scholarship to the relationship how, how do you you take the stuff that you've learned and get it into play mm. that's the missing piece and that's what I try to provide in tactics how do we get involved in conversation Specifically, in a way that makes our engagements look more more like diplomacy than D-Day. And stand mm-hmm. the reason is about building ambassadors for Christ. So we we play on that diplomatic model. So we are concerned about being tactful, mm-hmm. definitely. But how is it if we're going to be tactful? Exactly, how do we get into play in a tactful way with people who disagree with us on? foundational issues and, and and do something productive with the time we have together that's the approach of tactics now now greg what, what if someone comes up to you and says you know what yeah I'm, I'm sure that there's part of where it's good to be trained in advance but i'm more of a person i just like the holy spirit to guide me and and i just want to go up to people and just let the spirit guide me uh, and so i don't know if i really need your book mm-hmm. uh, how do you respond to somebody well like the first that? thing i'm going to ask is is uh, what does he mean by that i mean what does that what does that actually look like in play so you mm-hmm. come up to a person and you do what you wait until you hear a voice in your head mm-hmm. and i'm not being uh, yeah. uh, abusive here when i say it i'm not trying to be condescending i'm just uh, i'm curious what that looks like mm-hmm. um because the presumption there is that that the process of evangelism is one that is is in spirit driven in that sense that it isn't something that you prepare for that it isn't something you think through in advance uh, it's interesting that one of the pieces of the spiritual armor is uh, the, prep- the shotting your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Gee, that sounds to me like there's preparation involved. It isn't just uh, whatever you say, whatever comes out of your mouth at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach the Bible, and a lot of people who might take this approach to evangelism, maybe they teach the Bible too. Would they teach the Bible the same way? I don't study. I don't prepare. I just... However, the spirit leads. Now, there are some people who do that, uh, but characteristically, it doesn't strike me mm-hmm. as sound counsel or sound advice. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, the way I began my response to your question was to employ my own tactical game plan, mm. because the heart of the tactical game plan is asking questions, uh, in part to gain more information. Mm. That's the first type of question that we teach that I teach in the tactical game plan. So when you offered, as you role-played this, the person who says, well, I just let the Holy Spirit lead, frankly, I don't know what that means. It sounds spiritual. I have a general sense, but I want to see what what does that look like in actual practice? Mm-hmm. 
we walk into a situation and we wait until something comes out of our mouth, something comes to mind, and we presume that whatever comes to mind is the Holy Spirit telling me what I should be saying? Mm-hmm. And if that's what you mean by that, why would you ever think that whatever came to mind is what the Holy Spirit's telling you to say? Mm-hmm. Notice that I am not just taking, just even in this little example, Tim, I'm not just taking the burden of responsibility to answer the challenge that's being offered on my technique of evangelism. Mm-hmm. But before I can I can respond, I, I have, I, I've got some blank spaces here that need to be filled in for me. Mm-hmm. that have to do with the statement that was just made. So I'm going to be drawing the person out. I'm trying to figure out what they actually mean by that. Give me mm-hmm. some more detail so mm-hmm. I know what to work with. Yeah. And then I'm going to, f- I'm, it, when, if, depending on what they say, I'm going to ask, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Why would you say that? Why would you think that whatever comes into mind is what the Holy Spirit wants you to say? Mm-hmm. Those are two questions that are part of the game plan. And so this becomes a little uh, mini example, Mm. a workshop, so to speak, in our conversation here, just responding to that question to see how this actually works. Mm. Lots of times when people make challenges, whether it's theological like that one or whether it's a a non-Christian who's offering a a skeptic's challenge, there's a lot of ambiguity in what they say. Mm. Or there's, there are veiled assumptions that they think are true that are driving it. Well, I want to try to erase the ambiguity by asking questions for clarification. Mm-hmm. And I want to push those assumptions that they're making that's driving the enterprise out into the open and see if they have any good reason to hold the assumptions. All of that before I've taken on any responsibility proper mm-hmm. to answer the charge. Mm-hmm. I have ways to answer that that is in the sense that I'm making my own case. But yeah. what... Why should I, in a sense, go on the defensive right off mm-hmm. the bat? Why don't I, it wouldn't it be better, and I think in this case it certainly was, to ask more questions, to get the other person to clarify their own pe- point of view, than to defend their own assertion mm-hmm. before I take the responsibility on my own shoulders. That's a lot easier for me. Yeah, yeah. And it also makes the other person shoulder the proper burden for their side. Yeah, well, as well, and that, that's what I love about about your ministry, about you, about about the book Tactics is 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 that you are really entering into this. Uh, you know, I, I think especially with postmoderns, they're kind of they don't want just the every question to feel like a softball. Mm-hmm. You know, that that you just feel that you're asking postmodern postmoderns telling you they're revealing their soul to you, and you're just like, oh, these are easy. I'm hitting home runs with all these questions. I'm just hitting them out of the park, and you're the questions you're asking me. Uh, are, are so elementary to me because I've been so well trained and I love your approach is really making sure that you're engaging with mm-hmm. that person that you're really understanding them because I think then they realize wow this person it has taken the time to get to, to where mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. and if they can get to where I am and still clearly see Jesus from there mm-hmm. then perhaps I can uh, you know they can lead me to Jesus as well yeah I think th- that's kind of a strategic advantage to this approach it's also very biblical but it also makes my job a lot easier mm-hmm. you know if I'm talking with somebody whether they're postmodern or modern or wherever they happen to be coming from you know if I can if I can ask appropriate questions that are not disingenuous, they're, 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 I, I, I'm listening for the answer. I'm not just mm-hmm. throwing them out to catch somebody. There is a place for that, I think, by the way, but that's not what's starting, mm-hmm. how we start. Sometimes people have really bad thinking, and so you might want to exploit their bad thinking by asking a question to do so. But I, I, first, I've got I've to get a foundation down. Mm-hmm. I want to understand what's happening, what they mean, how they come to that conclusion, that kind of stuff. When I do that, though, a couple of things happen. First of all, 
because I'm engaging them and asking a, a genuine question, I'm showing up le- legitimate, genuine interest in them, yeah. and I'm listening to what they have to say. Yeah. So it is a real conversation. There are two people engaged, not just one person talking at the other. Yeah. But secondly, it makes my job a lot easier. Because if somebody fires out a challenge or a point like you offered a few moments ago regarding the technique of evangelism here, you know, not most, most people are not going to be quick on their feet that they can jump out with something clever right off the bat. And if you engage a person with questions like I offered, this kind of gives some breathing space here to kind of figure out how, how do I want to navigate through this issue mm-hmm. What's the person's emotional temperature in all of this? Mm-hmm. And as they're talking, I'm picking up on that, and I'm also getting a broader perspective of what, they're under, what their point entails, mm-hmm. and that just makes it easier for me to navigate. So for all those reasons, it's a great, it's a, I think, a very practical approach. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I, I am, we're talking about the book Tactics here uh, with Greg Kokel. Um, but I, I got to – hey, Daniel, can you come over here for a minute? Daniel is one of our supreme baristas at the Credo House. Yeah. <laughs> He's on his way over as we speak. Um, I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I don't mean to interrupt our broadcast, but can I get a um, Nicene mocha? Oh, yeah. Hot? Okay. <laughs> you guys want anything? I'll have one of those. Okay, Nicene mocha. Had, yeah. All right. I just are had you, one a while, while are, ago. Are you ordering that because you saw mine that's like two-thirds of the way down? Yeah, well, we're right in the middle of Credo House, and you know, this is, there's no reason for us not to take orders right now, is there? <laughs> no, no, it's good. Game on. <laughs> Hey, guys, this is also uh, open time, so if you guys have any questions, uh, please feel free to engage. This is a kind of a live uh, Theology Unplugged. Mm-hmm. Usually don't do this, so uh, raise your hand. Yeah. Right, I have two questions for Greg. Uh, first of all, I heard your broadcast, parts of your broadcast with Dan Wallace. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I believe it was earlier this year, and he was, uh, you were talking about a book that he was going to release. I forget the time frames. And you have to tell me things like five times for me to even remember them. So rather than listen to the podcast, I want to ask you again, like, the, the, I, I believe you said he had a first century manuscript that they, yep. that they discovered from the book of Mark. Yeah, this is a question about Dan Wallace, the, your first question. And Dan Wallace, of course, New Testament uh, textual critic type expert, the manuscripts and um, and I met with him, spent some time with him actually earlier this year, and we also had him on the air, and he was talking about some fabulous things that are happening in the discipline. There are all kinds of new manuscripts that are in the pipeline right now that are coming public, and he was, he did say on that broadcast that there was a, what he thinks, undoubtedly first century copy of, uh, of the Gospel of Mark. When I say copy, I mean a portion of it, not the whole Gospel which would be the, uh, the earliest, um, earliest manuscript evidence that we have of any New Testament book. And he said it has already been verified by the top scholar in the world, but they, you know, peer review, they've got to give us some more time, have some more people look at it, but he thinks that that, that assessment will hold. And this is really fantastic news for people who are interested in issues of uh, textual purity and the like. Uh, he made this announcement, by the way, during a debate with Bart Ehrman, who, of course, contests the, the purity of the New Testament. And, uh, and he sprung this on Bart Ehrman uh, un- unawares. So it was kind of a dramatic moment there, but that's where the, the initial 
announcement was made. And I think it was late last year. But this, the details will be coming out in a book. Uh, I think it's supposed to come out next year, so 2013. Uh, he he actually blogs with us. Dan does, and he blogged and announced it as well. That's where he mm-hmm. did the he did the debate and then blogged about the debate and announced it on our blog. So you had a second question, though, Jared. Uh, the second question was loosely related, and that's that you know the subject tonight is Jesus being the only way, and uh, I've got the uh, some Jehovah Witnesses coming by my house mm-hmm. for about six months, and we've dealt with mm-hmm. a whole variety of issues, and uh, and I'm. I'm have been discussing the, the as much as I can relate to them about our, our, you know original manuscripts and, and where we can look and see that their translation is wrong and the, the, particularly the variations that they do in the translation that any passage has mm-hmm. to do well most of the passages that have to do with Jesus being God mm-hmm. and uh, they came back to me last week and started saying that, uh, that they don't really know who translated their Bible because they didn't they didn't, they didn't want to uh, take glory for it, uh, so they hid their names. Oh, okay. Um, well, heard, do you know, have you ever heard that from the Jehovah's Witnesses? No, well, I, the, question, the question is about the Jehovah's Witnesses translation of the New Testament. It's called the New World Translation. And at very critical theological points, there seem to be amendations that are made in their text by their, and I'm going to put this in quotes, Greek scholars, um, and then they claim, of course, that their text is the true uh, rendering of the famous passages, Gen- or rather uh, John 1, one, where they say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. So, um, But they aren't willing to disclose who their Greek authorities are that translated this way. And, uh, I, you know, I can see why they don't want to do this. I don't think there's any legitimate reason not to do this because all kinds of academic disputes are public and the players have made their names known. But um, I think that there's secrecy because they're, they don't want to come under more scrutiny because someone could examine that person's credentials and maybe find them wanting. I think it's a non-issue ultimately because the real question is based on the manuscript evidence that we have, what is the appropriate rendering of the Greek into English? And in, in, in virtually every single case of these questionable renderings, it is the New World Translator, whoever, whoever it was, New World Translation Translator, whoever that was, that has rendered this in a completely different way than virtually every other known Greek scholar in the world. So I think it's fully legitimate to ask your friends, why would they trust the scholarship of the New World Translation, when you, they don't know who the scholars are, and they disagree with all the rest of the scholarship in the field. And, and you've got uh, translations that um, are not necessarily evangelical, are not necessarily even Christian. I mean, you've got very liberal scholars who are creating translations who agree in the same way with the traditional evangelical. Yeah, well, look at Bart Ehrman, who does not believe... In the uh, in the purity of the New Testament documents, all right. So he's a guy. He's not a Christian anymore. He's he's written books like misquoting Jesus, and so he's the guy that's going out of his way to point out the variations that seem to matter, to try to cast doubt on the in the text of the New Testament. As far as I know, he has never raised the points that the Jehovah's Witness guys have raised. So here's a. This is what you call. Um, you know, like enemy testimony or something. Even the guys on the other side from us on this issue don't seem to agree with the New World Translation crowd. 
even the guys who said that, yeah, the text has been corrupted, you can't trust in it, they don't buy the assessment that that the uh, New World Translation guys offer. So I, that ought to be, it seems to me, very persuasive evidence that there is something else going on than just integrity of an, of, uh, of translation here. There's a theological bias, I think, that's in Can play. you bring him up to the Credo House next time? Uh, All right, that's good. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got a special room in the back where we interrogate people. Yeah, we'll, take, we'll, we'll uh, talk I to them over in this corner. I think you've had any Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door here actually, off, and I'd be surprised. Actually, we have many calling us. So uh, we have a, a guy that calls us no pretty kidding. pretty frequently, and he always starts by saying, could I ask you some way a question, please? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then it ends up into Yeah, that, that's always a scary thing whenever somebody calls up and says, can I ask somebody a question? <laughs> and then uh, they go on for a long time. It's like Jesus in the parables. You know, you don't want him to start and say, you know, you ask him a question, you don't want him to turn a parable, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, yeah. an answer uh, into a parable because you know mm-hmm. you're in trouble then. <laughs> in, in a question of um, being in a place where somebody is in authority over you, whether it's a, um, in my case, it's a professor that has an agenda to um, say that, yes, that there is grace in Jesus Christ, but that grace covers the entire world. Uh, when it comes to an eternal salvation and, and essentially that that there is that hell is not a reality mm-hmm. and uh, you know there's been several conversations around that through Rob Bell's books mm-hmm. and other things like that how how would you suggest um, I could I could tactfully enter into conversations with somebody that essentially holds, holds uh, yeah, so the, right. The, the question here has to do with a theological issue and a difference of opinion, and the gentleman who asked it has a professor who's in a position of authority in some measure over it. Does, do you work for him, or is he just your professor in school, I'm like your student? Well, well, that makes it easier if he's your professor at school, and, and the professor uh, kind of holds more with the Rob Bell crowd that uh, that – uh, there is a universalism, or there's no hell, or maybe some form of annihilationism. I, I, by the way, it might be maybe you already know the answer to this question, but it might be helpful for them to clearly articulate what they actually do believe. Are they annihilationists, which means that those who are not believers just disappear, and that's their judgment; they're destroyed in that sense. Or does everybody go to heaven? Okay, well, it's the second and not the first. As a student, you are. It's, it seems to me in a completely legitimate position to challenge your instructor instructor respectfully and in a principled way. This is what students, especially graduate school, uh, yeah, on yeah, a graduate level, are supposed to do. And this uh, professors should be willing to step up to the plate and not complain because their graduate students are taking exception with what they're saying in a principled fashion. And so, by, by the way, both of those points are important. Doing it respectfully as a student to a superior, which your professor would be in a certain sense, um, doesn't mean he's right, but it means that there's a kind of a, a, an appropriate social pecking order there that you have to acknowledge. But, um, but also doing it in a principled way. That is, that you have reasons that you can give counter to his view, and you're interested in hearing what his rejoinder to your rationale would be. Now, I think what you need to abandon, and I don't know if this is what your sentiments are on this, but abandon the, 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 the if you have the desire to change his mind, abandon that as a goal, all right? Because 
professors don't change their minds very easily, especially if they're in print. Okay, so um, but 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 if this is a person who holds a contrary view and he's an educated person, you certainly want to understand the reasons he holds his view, and maybe he's given some of those, and then you're going to offer a contrary view, and you want to know how he answers your objections. This is an appropriate repartee in academic or, or, or broadly intellectual circles. It's the kind of thing I'm sure that goes on here at Cradle House all the time. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you, but what if somebody were to say this to your view? How would you respond? This is how we, we learn. And I, I'm going to ask that of the other person in part because if I think their view is wrong, I want them to struggle with the counterpoint. Okay, well, here, well, how do you, what do you say to this? And maybe they'll be taken by this. Now, if they aren't, I'm going to hear what they have to say. And if what they have to say is completely unconvincing, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I've got nothing to worry about then because he hasn't said anything that really addresses the issue I've offered. It may be, too, that even though he's looking unfazed, that it may get him to think or the other people, students maybe in your case, to think as well. By the way, specifically on this point, um, I think uh, here's just a thought I had, and I haven't seen this written in books. There's a lot of good responses to the universalism issue. But here are two citations that go together, make the same point, and it's something for someone else to answer. Um, Jesus said, do not fear him who can kill the body but not the soul, but fear him who could throw both body and soul into hell. Now, maybe he said Gehenna in the original or Hades or whatever, and this, or this is the place. People can fuss about that word. That's straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. The question that I'm offering is, if either universalism or annihilationism is true, what is there to fear? Regardless of the word that's used, why fear the Father? That's who Jesus is referring to. In the book of Hebrews it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't know about anybody else, but being annihilated doesn't terrorize me one bit. If the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, i got nothing to worry about because I just disappear. Maybe I go out in a flash with a boom, and maybe a split second, that kind of is a little painful, and then it is no more. But that, to me, is an issue that those folks have to answer. And my, my sense is the arguments have not been, by and large, coming from a theological foundation. They have been coming from an emotional foundation, which then s seeks to find passages that they can leverage to support their view. But what are they going to do with that? With those two passages that I just cited? And I think Matthew twenty five forty six always strikes me too because it's it's in one verse. He says, "And they will go away to eternal punishment, right. but the righteous will go into eternal life." Right. And so it's almost saying if you're going to jettison eternal punishment, you almost need to jettison eternal life too. Mm -hmm. Like if if we do not take the Bible at face value, how do any of us have any hope for eternal life as well? Well, uh, they might say that whatever that punishment is, it's it, its duration is forever. So. Yeah. If you get annihilated, for the annihilationist, they might have a way out here. Mm. You know uh, that you, you're annihilated forever; everybody else lives forever. But the universalist who says mm. everyone goes to heaven, I don't think he can answer that either. You know, yeah. Yeah. so I, I'm just trying to anticipate moves that somebody might make yeah. on that one. Somebody might fudge a little bit 
at least if they're annihilationists, but not the not the other. We've got a yeah. question here from it, Dr. Holzer. And just so you guys know, uh, that noise in the background is <laughs> Credo House uh, flavor just being created all over the place. That I thought is it was our, the dentist. Yeah. It, it, Credo House dentist. Yes. I mean, it's kind of dentist. Uh, you know, everything's happening inside the mouth here, but that is our <laughs> that are is our fraps that are out of this world. Uh, they have a double Dumb. shots with uh, just flavor like you can't believe. Triple shot, actually. Triple yeah, shot. Triple shot espresso. Uh, then uh, it's just got great. We have chocolate, caramel, or vanilla yeah, frappuccino. Who needs to get drunk whenever you can come here and have a triple shot? It is just like. That was a word from our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> that is really Okay, question. Would you differentiate between universalism and inclusivism? Uh, yeah, uh, the question is will I differentiate between universalism and inclusivism? Universalism is simply the idea that nobody goes to hell. All right? So that's every single person ever created ultimately gets into heaven, and that appears, depending on how you read it, what Rob Bill is arguing in uh, Love Wins. That's how Love Wins, everybody goes to heaven. There's some ambiguity, I think, in this book, but that seems where he's going. Um, inclusivism is a, is a hybrid form, <clears throat> excuse me, of pluralism. Pluralism holds that all, all religions lead to God. Okay, I'm going to actually argue against that tonight, and uh, and then I'm also going to argue against inclusivism, which is a, a Christian version of that. And I say Christian because inclusivism is only held by Christians who understand that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Um, but they qualify it in this way, though in God's bookkeeping, Jesus is necessary for anyone to be rescued from the Father's wrath. He had to die to to pay for sin. You don't have to believe in Jesus in order to benefit from Jesus. Instead of those be, who don't believe in Jesus being excluded from salvation, those who don't believe in Jesus can be included in virtue of something else. And this characteristically is pursuit, sincere pursuit. <coughs> excuse me, sincere pursuit of another religion. So another way of putting it is the good Jew or the good Buddhist or the good Hindu is saved by the blood of Christ, even if they don't know it. Karl Rahner, the Roman Catholic theologian, called these anonymous Christians. Now, in this view, a whole lot more people go into heaven than, say, an exclusivist type who says belief in Jesus is necessary for salvation. But not everybody goes to heaven because even so, there will still be people outside and uh, atheists or secularists, of, you know, or evil people of, of a certain dimension. Um, but certainly, the the gate is seems a whole lot wider open in the inclusivist view than the exclusivist view. And I'm going to suggest and argue indeed tonight that it's a whole lot wider open than Jesus even allowed for. We're going to pick this up next time on the broadcast. We are um, uh, here with Greg for two broadcasts. But uh, we're going to pick it up, and we're going to keep on talking a little bit about tactics and how, sure. how you include that. Because I, like, I like the illustrations you're bringing up, because tactics, I think, is, is best illustrated in, in tactical form. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Tim, you got anything Welcome. to say at the end? Uh, I just think this is awesome. I think this is very helpful. Uh, you know, Part of our, our passion of the ministry is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I just see uh, I, I love having Greg here because I, I feel like he's equipping all of us for the work of the ministry, helping us be ambassadors for Christ. And so thank you. Yeah, and I'm enjoying your coffee. Do you, you like <laughs> that? Yeah, actually, nice the uh, Nicene 
Mocha. Nice and mocha. Yeah. Which which means triple that the next shot with um, <laughs> with big train cocoa and um, Brahms milk. Yeah, and, and milk. the triple shot is espresso from Double Shot in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's right. That's uh, right. Featured in a next shout out to Double Shot. That's right. They're featured in a ne- Netflix uh, documentary called The Perfect Cappuccino as yeah. being a, a one of the great coffee shops in the United States. So we're excited to have that. So because we are all now drinking mochas, the next broadcast will probably be amped up. Yeah, a lot more <laughs> quick. So so put on your ears, you know, listening ears, because we'll be speaking really fast. Um, remember, we are a 501c3 not-for-profit, and uh, we want you to, um, uh, if you benefit from the broadcast, to uh, help fund this ministry. Because without your help. And Stand to Reason as well. Stand to Reason as well. Thank you. Look up Stand to Reason. Donate. STR.org. All right. Well, thank you for being with us, and we'll take this up next time. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.